Hello, good morning. Is it working? Don, it's so good to see you. Good morning, everybody. A massive welcome to Harbour City. If you've never been here before, if you're not a member, uh, it's great to see all of you this morning. My name is Brendan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you are a member of this church, you're probably wondering where Grant and Michelle are. If you don't know already, they're actually in America. They are still sleeping. Um, they're in San Diego. They're staying with Andy and Jackie, who run the Restored family of churches, who lead Restored Uptown. Um, and it's a great day today because Adam and Trang Jones, friends of Grant and Shell, um, are going to be ordained as elders this morning at Restored Uptown. Grant's got the privilege of doing that. So very cool to see them be a part of a bigger global gospel story, that God is doing something incredible in cities all across the world. Um, and that's where Grant and Michelle are this morning. But this morning, I'm going to be continuing through our Called series. It's a series which we as a community are looking to understand the purposes for which God has called all of us to. We are looking to explore the biblical truths that all of us are called, that all of us are gifted, and that God has a unique purpose for every single one of us in our lives and the plans that he has for us. So this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to go through a very well-known passage of Scripture. If you do have your Bibles or your devices with me, please take them out because we are going to be reading through the entire chapter of Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be unpacking that this morning, and I'm reading through the ESV version. A bit of background to Hebrews, if you're not too familiar with it. There's an unnamed author who is writing to a community of people through the letter of Hebrews or the book of Hebrews. And what he's writing into is a context in which people are facing a lot of persecution and imprisonment because of their association with Jesus. We can see that these people are literally being hounded by others because they are following Jesus, because they are trying to be disciples of Jesus. And what this writer is writing to them in the book of Hebrews is saying, guys, be encouraged to stay with Jesus. Don't run away from your faith. Don't turn away from him, but actually be encouraged. Stay true to who Jesus is and continue in your relationship and your walk with him. So that is the context under which this unnamed author is writing the book of Hebrews. When he's writing to them, he's encouraging them not to lose faith, and he's doing so by giving them a look back into the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Torah, and he is kind of writing with an assumption that they understand what happened in those first five books of the Old Testament. So we're going to jump straight into it in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For it is by the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So what he's starting to do is explain what faith looks like. That faith is belief in, that faith is devotion to God, that faith is understanding that actually God exists. It is a conviction that God exists. We don't have to see him to believe in him, but actually we believe in God without seeing him. He starts off writing this chapter saying, that is what faith is. And people of the olden days in the Old Testament were commended for their faith by walking with God, by having a relationship with God, by trusting in Him and continuing their faith even without seeing God. And by that same faith, we understand that creation and everything that we see around us was spoken into being by God when He first created the world. God didn't take something that was already made and then remake the earth, but rather He spoke everything into being that before nothing existed now exists today and what we see around us. And from these first three verses, he then launches into a kind of 
barrage of, of phrases that all start with, by faith, this person, by faith, that person, by faith, this person, as he goes through lists of old people in the Old Testament who have walked with God and who show incredible faith in their journey and their story with him. So picking up in verse 4, it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So if you don't know the story, Cain and Abel were the first sons of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 4, and we see that Abel was a shepherd, we see Cain was a farmer, and it came to the time when they needed to give God a sacrifice, and Abel, raising his his lambs and, and looking after his sheep, comes to God with his very firstborn lamb, and he sacrifices that to God. And we see Cain kind of having to do a sacrifice, gather some fruit together, and he gives it to God. And we see that God was more pleased with Abel's sacrifice, not because it was a lamb, not because it was meat over fruit and veg, but more because actually Abel's heart behind the situation was giving to God everything that he loved and owned, everything that he was proud of. He took his very firstborn lamb, the thing that he had worked so hard to kind of cultivate, and he offered that to God, which is not the same thing that Cain did. Cain's heart wasn't right before God, but Abel's was. And because of Abel's sacrifice, it was credited to him as righteousness. And that's the faith that we see Abel doing when he offers God a sacrifice. And we see then in the story that Cain then, knowing that actually his sacrifice wasn't as pleasing to God as his brother's was, kills his brother in a field. But Abel's faith still speaks to us in terms of his sacrifice to God. And in verse 5 it continues, it says again, By faith... Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So Enoch was a man who exists in a line or a lineage list of people in Genesis 5, talking about all the people who were born, and it goes through and it says there was this person and this was his son, and then he died. There was this person and then there was his son, and then he died. And it's just naming through the different generations coming out of Adam and Eve all the way down in the Old Testament. And we get to Enoch and we see that he was a man who all it says about him in the Old Testament was he was the father of Methuselah, a boy who was born when Enoch was the age 65. And after his son was born, he walked with God for 300 years. And God was pleased with him. That's all we know about this guy. Nothing else except that his faith caused him to walk with God for 300 years, step by step. Waiting on God, walking in communion with him, having a relationship with him, trusting him. We know nothing else, but he's credited here in Hebrews 11 as one of the people who are kind of the hall of fame faithers. He's saying, by faith, Enoch walked with God. And all we know is that he was a man who fathered a guy called Methuselah and walked with God for 300 years. And God was pleased with him in the way he lived out his life. But in his list, he wasn't a guy who died. God just took him. He just disappeared. He never died. People never buried his body. God just took him to be with him. And that's the only thing that we know about a man called Enoch. In verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. And I don't know about you, but maybe I've read this this story before. I've read this passage in Hebrews 11, and you kind of read through, and you know the names, you know the stories. You like kind of tick off and go, yeah, Noah, I know that guy. He was the guy who built the big ship and 
all the animals got on board and kind of there was this big flood and then a rainbow at the end. Anybody else remember the story of Noah and the ark like that? So I think that sometimes when we read through these stories, we see these guys' names and we don't really understand the background of that story. We never actually go back to Genesis, to the beginning, to see what it said. So I'd like to look quickly at Genesis 6, verses 5 to 9. I'll quickly read it for you. (coughs) It said, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I ever made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So we see again a man who walked with God is the same as Enoch, a guy who had a relationship with God who was completely blameless in a world that was full of sin and evil, where man's thoughts were so evil that God wanted to blot them out. In a moment when God completely regrets even making mankind, he is so distraught by what is happening on earth, he decides that actually what he's going to do out of that situation is wipe out every single living thing. But then he looks and he sees Noah, and Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. So what does God do? He warns Noah of a flood. And a flood was not something that ever existed. It's not something that had ever happened before, because even the Bible says here, um, concerning events as yet unseen, there had never been a flood before. But God spoke to him, and he said, go and build a boat, because I'm going to send a flood. So God calls Noah to do something that is completely unheard of, something that has never been done before. God calls him to build a boat, and it's not like they've ever built a ship before. They are miles from the nearest seashore. They have never actually constructed a ship before, but God calls him to do so. And it's not like Noah can go and phone a friend and ask him to help, saying, please can you help me draw up the schematics? Please can you help me measure out how many different lengths and cubics of wood that I need? What do you think the dimensions of the boats are going to be? How many animals do you think we're going to take on board? It's not like he had somebody else who was skilled at boat building to be able to rely on and help him in his journey. But faithfully, he obeyed God and he followed God's instruction and God gave him every single detail. God showed him how to do things and what to do and how to do it. So Noah was a man who went out and he started to get word and he started to obey God and he started to faithfully walk with God through this process of understanding what God has called him to. Amidst the world of evil, he's a man who's standing alone listening to the voice of God. And I think what I'm blown away by in this story is we see Noah stand up in a place where he's completely alone and he's called by God to do something that is completely foreign to him. He has no idea how he's going to do it. He's probably disqualifying himself saying, but how? How would I do such a thing? And I think sometimes we're the same. When actually God calls us to things, we sit there and we say, but God, how am I ever going to do that? I don't have the tools to do that. I'm disqualified from doing that. I have no idea what you are calling to me exactly. Can you give me a roadmap? Can you give me some more detail? And what we see in Noah's story is that God is faithful to him, and God, in his call, actually gives him every single detail, and he equips him to be able to do what he has called him to do. And we see that Noah went about with his family mile to mile, gathering and cutting down trees, being able to measure out the exact dimensions of the wood that God has called him to use to be able to build the ark. 
And I think while he was doing this, you can kind of put yourself in that situation where you see this guy, you walk past him, and he's building a massive boat. And you can imagine, and it talks about in, in Genesis, the people who were there were mocking at him, they were scoffing at him, they were laughing at him, saying, what are you building? What are you doing with your time? Why are you making your sons carry all of this wood down to this random area? What are you building with all of this stuff? What is a flood? What are you even talking about? Hey, Callum, come and check out this oak, boo. He's on drugs, but we have no idea what this oak is doing. You can imagine people walking past him and scoffing at him and laughing at him and mocking him because they have no idea what he is doing because God hasn't spoken to them. But he has been spoken to by God. God's called him to do something and he faithfully responds to God and God gives him the details to be able to do it. And in the midst of a world completely full of evil and full of voices that are calling him to actually ditch what he's doing, he faithfully obeys God and he builds an incredible ark. He was a man who stood alone in his obedience to God amidst a world who was trying to rip him away from it. And we jump down in verse 8, so we see the next big heroes of faith. We have Abraham and Sarah. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of a place that he was to receive his inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living with tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah, his wife, herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So we see Abraham and Sarah are called out of a space where they lived by God to go and live in a foreign land, and they get up and they leave everything that they know because God calls them to do it, and they go without even knowing where they are going. They lived in foreign, as foreigners in a foreign land, or strangers in a foreign land, in tents, raising their families because God had called them to do so. And then we see God give them a promise of them being able to have multitudes and multitudes of family and generations that will come out of their family. But both Abraham and Sarah are incredibly old and unable to conceive. And we see it says here, Therefore one man, and him as good as dead, was born descendants as many of the stars of the heaven and as many of the innumerable innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. What a way to be described in the Bible. This guy's calling Abraham as good as dead. When I die, I don't want to be recalled as good as dead when people talk about me. But they speak about Abraham saying, he was so old, he was as good as dead. Yet God faithfully came to give him a son when both him and Sarah were right at death's door. And from that, a multitude of generations come through as innumerable as grains of sand on the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So Abraham and Sarah were promised to go to a promised land by God. They got up, they left everything that they knew, they pursued God faithfully, they obeyed Him, and they never even reached the promised land. But Abraham and Sarah looked past their death to be able to see heaven one day where they would not be strangers anymore. They would be in their true home, not living in tents any longer, or actually they would live in a city that would be designed and built by God. And if we jump down to verse 17, we know that actually God was also faithful in giving them their son, Isaac. And it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, 
of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So he is about to sacrifice the one and only son that God had promised him. And he does it obediently by faith. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So he still continues to follow God, to have faith in him and to trust in him, despite what God has called him to. And God provides a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, right at the last minute, and he doesn't kill his son. But Abraham went in there knowing, actually, you've told me that this is the son through which all of the generations are going to be born. If you ask me to kill him, I know that you're probably going to raise him from the dead, so I'm going to do it anyway. And we see Isaac um, grow up. And in verse 20 it says, By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau his sons. By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons, the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So we see the lineage of Abraham through to Isaac, Isaac through to Jacob, and Jacob through to Joseph, who last week we learned about was the guy who was too I see in all of Egypt and who had favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. And we see that the Israelites actually begin to move into Egypt because of the famine that existed in the land. And we see that God's promise for Abraham and Sarah to see multitudes of generations come from their family come to fruition as we see millions of Israelites living in the kingdom of Egypt. And it carries on in verse 23 to speak about Moses. Just before we get there, there was quite a long period between Joseph and Moses. And when, Mo- when Joseph was around, the Israelites and Joseph specifically saw favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. But by the time jo- uh, Moses was around, we saw that actually there was a new king, there was a new Pharaoh, and the Israelites didn't have favor with him. So what happened was he started to put them into slavery because he was worried that they would overpower the Egyptians. He put all of the Israelites into slavery. They weren't allowed to do anything important. They were just had to be menial laborers. And we see what he does next is he issues an order that every single male baby born of an Israelite is to be thrown into the river Nile to be killed. And he does this so that, number one, that the line or the lineage of Israelites would be able to stop after a certain generation. And number two, that the Israelite women, when they are of age, would marry Egyptian men and they would become assimilated into Egyptian culture. Then they wouldn't want to overthrow the Egyptians anymore. So we see him issue an order to kill all boy Israelite babies. But in verse 23, it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So we see here, actually, this part is not about Moses. This is about Moses' parents. Their name in Exodus 2 is Amram and Jochebed. And they would have been waiting for nine months during this pregnancy, hearing the king's order, kind of massively anticipating what baby they were going to have. Wondering, is it going to be a boy? Are we going to have to sacrifice and kill our son? Are we going to have to throw him into the river now? Are we going to pick up our own little child and put him into a river to drown and die? Or are we going to have a girl? Because back in those days, they didn't have ultrasound scanners. They didn't have gender reveal parties. Let's be honest, they would have been waiting there going, we're caught in a massive dilemma because if we have a son and we choose to keep him alive, our entire family is at threat of being killed. That was part of the Pharaoh's order. They already had a son and a daughter. Were all four of them going to be killed if they had a son? But if they had a daughter, would they be safe? So they were waiting for nine months in anticipation to see what they would have. And when their son is born, Moses, they saw that he was no ordinary child 
other versions of the Bible say. In this one it says that he was beautiful. And it says they were not afraid of the king's edict. They had faith in God to be able to hide him for three months. And Nate and Cans, if you know them, they're sitting at the back there with their beautiful baby girl. Um, Izzy is almost a month old now. We went to visit her a couple of weeks ago. And uh, while we were there, shame, she had a little bit of pain in her tummy or maybe she had a wind that she was trying to, I don't know, burp out. But she was crying quite a lot. And um, I don't know if you've been around a baby, but it's a noise that you can't really stop. And when I read this, I'm like, they hid a baby for three months. Can you imagine hiding a crying baby? It's not a switch that you can just turn off. But they have this little baby in their arms, and they say, you know what, by faith, we're going to hide it, because we see that actually God has given him to us. We see that he is going to be used by God for something mighty. And actually, we're not just going to go and throw him into the river now. We're going to hide him faithfully, because we're not afraid of the king. And when they couldn't hide him any longer, they made a basket, and they put him into the basket, and they sent him down the river. I have two children. I could never do that. I could never put my kids into a basket when they are three months old and just push the basket away and just hope that actually somebody's going to pick it up down the line. But they had faith in God, and they made a basket. They put Moses in it. They put it down the river. And Moses' sister begins to run along the river shore to see what would happen, where the basket would end up. And she gets to a point where Pharaoh's daughter comes down from the palace with her entire entourage. She comes down to the river to bathe, and she picks up the basket, and she finds Moses inside. So Moses' sister runs up to her full of faith and says, I see you found a baby. Let me find you a midwife. And she runs home very cleverly and she chats to Moses' mom and she brings her and she says, this lady will nurse her and she'll look after the baby that you have found in the river. And because of Moses' parents' faithfulness, we can actually see that God provides in a way that nobody would have ever seen. That she would be able to nurse and raise her son for three years. Absolutely incredible story. Excuse me, it's very hot today. So in verse 24, now we find out about this little baby boy who was put in a basket in a river. And it says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. So what he's talking about here is when Moses grew up, he chose rather to be an Israelite slave than to be an Egyptian pharaoh prince. He is choosing rather to be poor than to live in the Egyptian's wealth. He is choosing rather to actually have a relationship with God than the ways of the world. That's what we see Moses grow up to do. And in a moment where he sees Egyptians oppressing an Israelite, he mistakenly kills an Egyptian guard or policeman, whatever you want to call him, and he flees from Egypt. When he's fleeing from from Egypt and the Egyptians, he has the most incredible and radical encounter with God when he meets God as a burning bush. And God calls him to lead his people of the Israelites out of Egypt. And Moses answers that call, and he faithfully and obediently answers that call and walks with God, and he begins to do incredible things with Moses as he leads the people out of Egypt. So in Exodus 14, what happens in the Passover, as it says in verse 29, By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. 
And it's an incredible, magnificent account reminding us of the story when two million Israelites picked up everything that they had and they stood in front of the sea and God opened the waters as if there was dry land for them to walk on. You can imagine these Israelites climbing down the rocks that existed with bits of coral and sea urchins sticking out. And they had to cross between 15 to 20 kilometers of ground while there's walls of water either side of them. It would have taken them between five or six hours just to get across the Red Sea. And I was reading an article last night where they said in November 2018, there was a group of um, underwater archaeologists who found a whole bunch of bones and war chariots that kind of were dated back to 14th century BC, which confirmed the stories of what happened with the Israelites leaving Egypt. Because they were drowned when the Red Sea closed in on them. And I think so often we can think, oh yeah, the Red Sea, the Israelites crossed it, yeah, yeah, that's cool. But actually when we understand that there are two million people walking with all of their belongings and their animals and their kids in tow before 15 to 20 kilometers, that's an incredible feat. I think that's an incredible God. And by faith, the Israelites did so. In verse 30, it says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So in the book of Joshua now, we see the Israelites have left Egypt. They're walking into the promised land. They come into Canaan, and the first city that they encounter is the city of Jericho. They send a couple of spies in to go and see what the city's about, how they're going to attack it, how they're going to win over the war. And Rahab has heard stories about the Israelites, stories about God's people, stories about the Red Sea crossing. And she puts her faith in God and actually invites them in so that she could hide them in her apartments and let them out of her window so that they can go back to the army of Israel. And her righteousness is credited to her because of her faith in God in that moment. And then God tells them to do the most ridiculous and absurd thing that humanly we would not be able to fathom and understand. He says to them, don't go and attack the city of Jericho, rather just walk around it for seven days. Just go for a walk once a day for six days. On the seventh day, do so in absolute silence. Walk around it seven times. And once you finish on the last round, just blow your trumpets, sing, worship me. And as they did so, the walls of Jericho fall down. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. Not by human action, not by attacking anything, not by going in to kill anybody. All they did was faithfully and obediently answered what God had called them to. And the walls of a city fell down. And in verse 32, it says, And what more shall I say, for time would fail me. So the writer's saying, yeah, he's saying, guys, I could go on forever and ever and ever. I could recount the stories. I could tell you about this person and that person and how they walked with God and how they were faithful and the things that God did with them. I could go on and on and on. But honestly, guys, my hand is sore. I cannot write anymore. Time is going to fail me to tell you the stories of what God has done throughout all of history. So let me read on. He says, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Incredible things that God did with his people, incredible things that people faithfully followed God, walked with God. Things that people did in the past. And then it takes a very strange turn in verse 35. It says, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. 
Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had promised something better for us, that apart from us, that they should not be made perfect. So we've got to remember the context in which this unnamed author is writing to this community. He's saying, guys, remember all these incredible people? Remember what they did? Remember how they faithfully walked with God? Remember the things that God did with them? Was not only them, but even the people who were persecuted and killed and mocked and flogged, even the people who were sawn in two, did not give up their faith. As much as you are in persecution, I'm trying to remind you of God's goodness, of God's faithfulness, of God's promises, of the fact that God can actually walk with people through all of history. And not only the people that did amazing things, but even those of the people who were killed for their faith didn't turn away from it just so that they might live. In their persecution, they endured death because of their faith in Jesus, because of their faith in God, because of their faith that actually one day they might enter into heaven with Him. So if you're facing persecution, be reminded of the people who God did great things with, but also be reminded of the people who were killed for their faith, who didn't run away from God, but rather they endured it because they wanted to get into heaven. If you are facing persecution, stand with those people as well. And I think so often we read this, this passage in Hebrews chapter 11, which is called the Hall of Fame or the Hall of Faith, and we look at these amazing characters and what God did with them and the faith that they had in those moments, and we kind of look at them and we feel a little bit daunted by them. We think to ourselves, well, I could never be an Abraham, I could never be a Moses, I could never be a Noah or a Gideon or a Barak. But we've got to understand that Hebrews 11 doesn't exist to intimidate us, but rather for us to imitate We have to realize that all of these people that actually this writer in Hebrews is speaking about, the Abrahams, the Noahs, the Moses, were completely ordinary people. They were people who in ordinary life just followed God, who obeyed Him, who walked with Him. I think sometimes we put these people up on a pedestal and we need to understand that actually they were flawed as well. That sometimes their flaws were as memorable as their faith. If you read through the scriptures, you can see that actually Abraham was a liar. We can see that when Sarah was promised by God that she would have a son, she laughed at God. We can see that um, Jacob was a deceiver. Moses was a murderer. We can see that David was an adulterer. We can see that the Israelites, who were the same people who walked through the Red Sea, who saw God's power in action, were the same people who grumbled and moaned and complained every single day while they walked through the desert on the way to the promised land. We've got to understand that these people who we see in Hebrews 11 are completely ordinary people, but they're commended for their faith as they walked with God and journeyed with God through their story. We are bombarded by the phrase, by faith, throughout this passage, when it says, by faith Abraham, by faith Moses, by faith Noah. And we've got to understand and see through this passage that every single one of those by faiths show us that actually people are intertwined into the story of God as he walks with them, as they obey him, and as they faithfully walk with him. And what I love is that the writer continues this little passage after Hebrews 11 into chapter 12, and he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we see the writer in Hebrews here saying, Remember all of these people? Remember all the great things that, the, that they had done? Remember all the things of the people who actually died because of their faith? Therefore, because of them and our reminder of them, we're surrounded by them as a great cloud of witnesses. Let us in our own lives push on for what God has called us to. Let us in our own lives obey God and faithfully walk with God into the things that he is calling us to. And maybe you're sitting there going, cool, Brendan, that's amazing. You told us about a whole bunch of stories, about a whole bunch of old dead people. What has that got to do with us? Well, maybe like Noah, God is calling you to do a job that you feel completely unqualified for. Maybe like Noah, God is calling you to do a job that you've never done or start a business that you've been dreaming about. Maybe like Noah, God is calling you to be a person who is faithful in walking with him amidst a world that is full of evil and is causing you to think and look otherwise and be distracted away from him. Maybe like Abraham, God is calling you to be a stranger in a foreign land. Maybe he's calling you to change jobs. Maybe he's calling you to move house. Maybe he's calling you to relocate your kids to different schools. Maybe he's calling you to a different city or maybe even a different country. Maybe like Amram and Jochebed, we are called to be parents who feel completely unqualified to be able to raise our children. But by faith, we'll do so. Maybe like the Israelites at the Red Sea, God is going to call us to believe in him when things seem completely humanly impossible. We're faced by a massive sea that exists before us, and we think, how are we ever going to cross this? And God does the impossible and does something that is completely different from what we thought. Maybe like the Israelites at Jericho, God tells us to do something that seems completely ridiculous and absurd. Instead of attacking a city, we need to walk around it. But in our own lives, that might be in our workspace, God calls us to do something. Maybe it's a relationship that you're struggling with at work where you want to actually go in there and attack and God is calling you to actually just love the person. So maybe those walls of issues between the two of you would fall down. Maybe like Enoch, God is calling us just to walk with him for the rest of our lives. Or maybe like the others that they mention, we are called to enforce justice, to stop the mouths of lions, to conquer kingdoms and put armies to flight. Or maybe even we're called to suffer in pain and agony until death. Whatever we are called to, we can see in Hebrews that whatever we are called to, we are called to respond by faith. By faith in a God who delivers his promises. By faith in a God who walks with his people. By faith in a God who completely and utterly loves us and has plans and purposes for our lives. Let us be a people who, who walk into what he has called us to by trusting him, even if we're not 100% sure of where we're going even if we're feeling completely ill-equipped to do so. Let's trust that God will guide us, that he will lead us, that he will equip us. What I love is at the end of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, let us look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Because as in Hebrews 11, the author reminds us of all these incredible people who are faithful. So much more, he's saying, but even irrespective of them, let's look to Jesus, who is the most faithful. He is the one who came down from heaven, who understood the plans that God had called him to, who had to go and endure the cross, who had to go and die in our place so that we could be redeemed to God to have a relationship with him, 
so that his blood would be shed so that we could have a relationship with God. Let us look to Jesus, not just those old people to be reminded and encouraged and motivated to continue our lives. Let's look to Jesus who can forgive us of our sins. Let's look to Jesus who enables us to have a relationship with God. Let's look to Jesus who was faithful to the end when he died. But he didn't just die, he was risen again, and now he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Church, let's be a people who are encouraged and motivated by the people who existed in the Old Testament, who walked with God, who were obedient to God, and who were faithful to God. Let's be a people who walk with God in faith in everything that he has called us to. Let's be a people who are full of faith when we are called to lead people, when we are called to move to different countries, when we are called to do our jobs well, to raise our children well. When we are called just to walk with God all the days of our lives. Let's be ordinary people who follow an incredibly and extraordinary God. Let's live our lives and step into our calling by putting our faith in Jesus and looking to Jesus as we continually walk with God. Please won't you stand with me.